to Tales of a Children's Doctor, a podcast outlining a life spent working with some incredible children and introducing you to them and their families. In this season, we will also meet some amazing colleagues and hear their stories. Here is your host, Chris. Please come and join him. Episode 1, Coming to Sheffield. So welcome to Series 2 of Tales of a Children's Doctor. In this series, I'm planning to really look at the rest of my career as a consultant paediatric neurologist. And I'm going to introduce you to many of the children that I've got to know in detail over the last 30 years. But also, I hope you'll get a chance to meet some of my amazing colleagues that I've worked with in that same time. They have real talents and specialties that I hope you'll be able to learn from and find really interesting. I call this first episode Coming to Sheffield because that's what it's really all about. So I finished my time in Australia and I left there knowing that although it had been a great time, I knew that the start of the rest of my life beckoned as I moved to Sheffield. I arrived in Sheffield on a Sunday afternoon. The hospital had been kind enough to provide me with accommodation, and so I turned up at the accommodation, not realising, of course, that there would be nothing in it. And there wasn't, not even a toilet roll. I didn't know Sheffield at all. I couldn't find anybody living nearby, and I wandered around for quite a while without much success. It's very different in England coming on a Sunday. When I left Scotland, all the shops were open on a Sunday, but in England they were all shut. Fortunately, eventually I bumped into somebody who turned out later to be a future colleague in the new professor of paediatrics in Sheffield. He was also living in the same accommodation as me, and he was able to tell me about a shop that was open on a Sunday. I went there. I settled in and went into work the following morning. Nowadays, of course, you'd have a period of induction. You'd get to meet people and you'd, I think, be given an insight into how the hospital works. When I started, none of that occurred. I had a clinic my first morning. It was quite something starting as a consultant paediatric neurologist. Suddenly, I was fully responsible, and nobody else could take that responsibility. Of course, I could ask for advice. I could talk to colleagues elsewhere in the country. But the buck stopped with me, and this was a real eye-opener. It's quite hard to explain As a senior registrar in Glasgow, I'd been seeing patients independently. I'd been making decisions independently. But all of the patients ultimately were under the care of my consultant, and so I could always turn to him, and the buck stopped with him, not with me. Of course, I was fully responsible and fully accountable for all of my decisions, and I had to stand or fall by them. But ultimately, I always knew that there was somebody else I could turn to. As a consultant, that's very different. Suddenly, you're the person that everybody's turning to. Suddenly, you're the person that people want to ask for advice. Suddenly, you're the person that's supposed to know everything. It was very strange arriving in Sheffield. There hadn't been a consultant paediatric neurologist in Sheffield for over a year. My predecessor had left to go and work in a pharmaceutical company, and there'd been a doctor acting as a locum, But that was somebody who was actually an endocrinologist by training, not a neurologist. So essentially things had been lying fallow for pretty much a year. My first clinic was a bit of a blur. I don't really remember much about it. I don't remember the patients I saw. I don't really remember anything at all. 
but what I do remember is the very first ward round that I conducted. I went down to the wards at lunchtime to do the ward round and met for the first time the team of doctors that were working with me. They seemed incredibly keen and incredibly enthusiastic. I was taken to the first patient and was told he was a child who had cerebral palsy and who had come in with a severe respiratory infection. As was my wont, the first question I asked was, well, why has he got cerebral palsy? What's the cause? And everybody looked a bit blank. We went in behind the curtains and found to everyone's shock that, in fact, the child had passed away. This was particularly shocking for the senior registrar who was with me, as she'd seen the child only that morning. I was completely stunned. It's not common for children to die, although I suppose as a neurologist this is something I came across not infrequently, and perhaps more often than virtually any other specialist other than paediatric oncologists. I met with the child's mother. Although she was distraught, in some ways though she was resigned. She'd already lost two children with the same problem. It quickly became clear to me that this wasn't cerebral palsy in the ordinary sense. This was clearly a much more complex disorder. I spoke to her in detail, and I said to her that one of the most important things that we could do for her child was to try to find an answer, to try to find out why he had had his neurological disability, and to find out why he had died. I asked if she would mind consenting for a post-mortem examination. She immediately consented, I suppose a bit to my surprise. I think she really wanted to have some answers and she felt that this was perhaps the first opportunity that she really had to do so. I cannot underestimate just how difficult it was for her. But I felt that having met her in this moment, having spoken to her and having empathised with her, that the decision to proceed to post-mortem was a really important one and it was something that meant a lot to her. The rest of the ward round passed without event, and I saw a number of patients. I introduced myself to staff in all the different wards. I was amazed how much people were looking forward to there being a paediatric neurologist in the hospital. There were general paediatricians who were clearly extremely experienced and extremely senior, but they were keen to have someone whose specialty was in paediatric neurology. I'll come back to some of that in due course, but what I'd like to do now is to take you through what happened with the child who had unfortunately died, what happened with his brother, and subsequently with his sister, all of whom I looked after. Let me start by telling you a little bit more about Muhammad. He was the boy who I really never got to meet other than when I did that fateful first war drought. Muhammad was the fifth child of parents who were first cousins. He had had two siblings who had died, both with what appeared to be cerebral palsy. They had both died around the age of 11 or 12, and that was Muhammad's age when he had died. There were two children in the family who were well. All the children who had been affected were boys, and the two siblings who were well were girls, and that made me wonder whether this was a genetic condition, transmitted in an X-linked recessive manner. In other words, I thought perhaps this was a condition carried on the X chromosome. This would make it likely that boys would be affected, as they only have a single X chromosome, and girls would either be unaffected or would be carriers. I waited for the results from Muhammad's post-mortem. The only really positive findings came from the examination of his brain, and those results came quite a long time after the post-mortem, because neuropathology takes quite some time to process. 
When the results did become available, they were remarkable. Muhammad's brain was full of calcium, but importantly, there were signs of inflammation not only in the blood vessels around his brain, but also in the membranes that lined the brain. I reviewed the notes of Muhammad's older brother, who had died a few years earlier. I found information in the notes which suggested that he too had had calcification in his brain. It seemed to me, therefore, that we were dealing with a condition that was genetic and which was characterised by calcification in the centre of the brain and with a severe motor disorder which looked like cerebral palsy. Importantly, it looked as though inflammation was a key part of that process. A few years before I saw Muhammad, there had been a description of a similar condition by a man called Jean-E Cardi. Jean-E Cardi was an extremely eminent pediatric neurologist from Paris, and he worked with a number of colleagues. He and one of those colleagues, Françoise Gutier, described a series of children with a condition which subsequently came to be called Cardi Gutier syndrome. The history of Cardi Gutier syndrome is fascinating. Ecardi and Gutierrez described eight children who came from five different families. All of these children had a very severe early-onset neurological disorder, which was characterized by the presence of calcium in the center of the brain, in a part of the brain known as the basal ganglia. These children also had abnormalities of white matter and had brain atrophy. The clinical picture looked in many ways like cerebral palsy, as all the children had small heads and were stiff, with a mixture of spasticity and dystonia, although a crucial difference was that Acardi-Gutierrez syndrome appeared to be progressive. One of the striking features of the condition was that in the cerebrospinal fluid there were excess numbers of white cells, suggesting some sort of inflammatory condition. In some of the families the parents were related to each other, and this strongly suggested that the condition was genetic in origin. Later on, it became clear that there were other features seen in these children, including chillblains, which could affect fingers, toes and tips of the ears. In fact, the first girl born to the family I was looking after did, in fact, develop chillblains. About four years after Ecardi and Gutierrez described these children, a French pathologist, Pierre Le Bon, identified increased levels of a chemical known as alpha-interferon in the spinal fluid of these children. This was further evidence that this was an inflammatory condition. When that became clear, people spent a lot of time trying to see if they could identify a virus which caused the problem, but no consistent infective cause could be identified. A similar disorder had been described in some First Nations children in Canada, and this was known as creencephalitis. The brain findings in Acardi-Gutierrez syndrome were also very similar to those seen when mothers had been infected with so-called torch organisms during early pregnancy. The torch organisms are toxoplasma for the TO, rubella for the R, cytomegalovirus for the C, and herpes virus. It had been recognised that there were a group of children with virtually identical findings to those seen after torch infections in utero but in whom none of the torch organisms were ever identified. This was called pseudotorch syndrome. In the UK, a group in Leeds led by Dr Yannick Crow began to look for genetic causes for Acardi-Gutierrez syndrome. I liaised with both Pierre Le Bon and Yannick Crow about the family in my care. 
In 2000, Yannick Crow's group showed that there was a linkage in a number of families with Acardi-Goutier syndrome to the short arm of chromosome 3. A few years later, a second linkage was identified to the long arm of chromosome 13. And shortly after this, the first of a series of genes responsible for Acardi-Goutier syndrome were identified. The first of these was called TREX1. Once these genes were identified, it became clear that Acardi-Goutier syndrome, Cree-encephalitis and Pseudotorch syndrome were effectively the same condition. Subsequently, it's become apparent that these genes are important in the expression of a protein called interferon, and the conditions are now called type 1 interferonopathies to reflect the spectrum of the condition. Fascinatingly, Long before this, in the 1970s, a group undertaking experiments on mice suggested that excessive exposure to type 1 interferon, either too much of it, or exposure for too long, or at the wrong time, could be detrimental to mammals. It now seems clear that they were correct. So what are interferons and what do they do? Interferons are signalling proteins which belong to a much larger class of proteins known as cytokines. Cytokines are important substances that act to trigger the immune system to defend against infection. Interferons are named because of their ability to interfere with viral replication, that is the ability of viruses to make copies of themselves to allow spread to other cells in the body. Thus, interferons act to protect the body against viral infections. Interferons are signalling proteins that are released by cells when there are viruses about, as well as protecting cells by interfering with viral replication, they also activate several really important parts of the immune process, including some cells known as natural killer cells and macrophages. The mechanism whereby interferons have their action is extremely complex and involves numerous different pathways within the cell. The production of interferons is really tightly regulated within the body, and this probably reflects the fact that too much inflammation is just as bad as not having an inflammatory response at all. What is known is that the genes responsible for Acardi-Goutier syndrome and other type 1 interferonopathies upregulate type 1 interferons. In other words, they increase the activity of type 1 interferons. And it's thought that this is what's responsible for the clinical features in these conditions. Quite how this happens is unclear. Nevertheless, this understanding is beginning to lead to searches for treatment and it's beginning to lead people to look at certain drugs, including those known as reverse transcriptases, which is the type of drugs used to treat HIV. So far, these studies are really in their infancy and there really is no substantial data to show that these drugs have an effect in treating Acardi-Goutier syndrome at the present time. But hopefully, in the future, we will have some options available to us. Let's return to my family. After that first ward round, I arranged to see Muhammad's younger brother, Zahid, in my clinic. He was nine years of age. When he came to clinic, it was clear that he had a very similar clinical picture to his brother. He had a very small head, he was very stiff, and he was fully dependent on his mother for pretty much everything. It was also immediately obvious that Zahid was very alert and interactive. He had the most amazing eyes, and these were incredibly expressive. 
His mom told me that he couldn't really communicate other than by looking or by making sounds to indicate happiness or distress. It was also clear that she loved him dearly and that he loved her. We talked at length about Zahid's needs. One of his major problems was that he was extremely stiff and his mum felt that this caused him considerable discomfort. I suggested that we try using a muscle relaxant medication to help with this and she was keen to try. When I next saw Zahid, his mum was delighted. She told me that he was much less stiff and, as a consequence, seemed much happier. She was delighted that although we couldn't solve his problems, we could make life better for him. We also talked a bit about the fact that this was clearly a genetic condition, but Zahid's mum was already aware of this. She was also aware of and extremely fearful of the future for Zahid. He'd already had a number of chest infections, some of which were severe enough to take him into hospital. She recognised this pattern from her previous children. We talked a lot about how to deal with this. About six months after I first met Zahid, his mum came into clinic and told me that she was pregnant, expecting her seventh child. At this time, although we knew this was a genetic condition, we didn't have any way of testing for this in the womb. And to be honest, I don't think his mum would have wanted to do that anyway. A couple of months later, I got a call from the neonatal unit to say that she'd delivered a baby and that it was a girl. It was obvious, even at birth, that the little girl, who was later called Sarah, had significant neurological difficulties. Her head was small, she didn't feed well, and her muscle tone was abnormal. I went to see Sarah and her mum. Sarah's mum was delighted to have a little girl, and although she immediately recognised that Sarah was affected by the same condition as her brothers, she was grateful to have her. I could see immediately that Sarah would be valued and loved in the same way as all the other children in the family. We investigated Sarah, and indeed she did have the same problem as her brothers. Sarah's mum had always expected that the girls in the family would be unaffected, and that it would only be boys who were affected, so having a little girl who was affected did come as a big shock for her. For me, it was a real learning experience. I met Sarah on day one, and I was able to watch her develop, and to watch the difficulties and problems that she developed come about. Very sadly, only a few weeks later, Ibrahim was admitted to hospital very severely ill with a chest infection. He died within an hour or two of his arrival at the hospital. I once again found myself meeting with his mum in her time of grief. This time, though, it was very different because I knew her well and I'd known Ibrahim. Both she and I took comfort from that. I continued to see Sarah on a regular basis. I recognised that both Ibrahim and his brothers had started to show signs of progressive respiratory difficulty from quite early on, and I strongly suspected that their condition was interfering with the safety of their swallow. We therefore arranged for Sarah to have careful and regular assessment of her feeding, and as soon as it became clear that her swallow was becoming unsafe, I discussed with her mum switching to her to tube feeding. Sarah's mum was initially resistant to this because she felt that Sarah enjoyed her feeds. But over quite a short period of time, Sarah started to show distress when she was feeding. She would cough and choke. At this point, her mum agreed that tube feeding was in Sarah's best interest, and we implemented that. Developmentally, Sarah made very slow progress, and she had very similar problems to her brothers, 
but like Ibrahim, she was a responsive, beautiful child with expressive eyes and an enlivening smile. She never seemed upset about her disabilities, and the only time I really saw her distressed was when she was unwell or when she was in pain. She did need help from the orthopaedic surgeons because of the impact of severe stiffness on her joints, and she required regular and intense physical therapy. At the age of seven, Sarah started to develop chillblains. This was only just beginning to be recognised as a feature of Acardi Gutierrez syndrome at that time, and Sarah was one of the first children with this condition in whom chillblains were recognised. At the age of 12, Sarah was admitted to hospital with a sudden onset of a severe right-sided weakness, and a brain scan showed that she'd had a stroke. It seemed so unfair that a child with such significant pre-existing neurodisability should have an additional neurological impairment. Despite this, though, and with incredible input from her mum, Sarah made a fairly good recovery from her stroke. And although she was always worse on the right than on the left, she did recover very nearly to her previous state. As Sarah got into her early teens, her mum started to show signs of stress and worry. This was the age at which all of Sarah's brothers had died. I was hopeful that the approach that we'd taken in protecting Sarah from aspirating food by starting tube feeding and the aggressive approach that we were taking to treating respiratory infections would prevent her from succumbing to a severe chest infection. And indeed that was the case. I continued to see Sarah right up to the point that she was 19. By the time it came for me to transfer her to care to adult services, I really knew Sarah well, and I also knew her mum really well. It was really difficult talking about transfer to adult services. What was amazing was that, apart from the admission with a stroke and the planned admissions for orthopaedic intervention, Sarah had not had an acute admission to hospital with respiratory infection for over a decade. She remained a responsive and amazingly cheerful young woman. She was the last child in the family, and it was clear that the whole family doted on her. She was always beautifully dressed, fantastically well cared for and deeply loved. The only regret I really ever had was that her brothers hadn't been able to have the same outcome as Sarah. I don't think that it was that Sarah was less severely affected than them. Rather, I think it was that medicine had moved on, and the medical opportunities offered to Sarah just weren't available when her brothers were younger. I continued to hear about Sarah for several years after I discharged her from my care, and although profoundly disabled, she remained stable and well. I haven't heard anything of her from, for many years now, but I still wonder how she's getting on. I miss the conversations that I had with Sarah's mum. I really valued the opportunity that I had to see Sarah throughout her entire childhood and into early adult life. This was one of the things I'd always hoped that a career in child neurology would bring. Sarah was one of many children who I've been privileged to see throughout their entire childhood into early adult life. I'll tell you some of their stories in coming episodes. I hope you'll join me to hear more. As this is the first episode of the second series of my podcast, I'd be really grateful if you enjoyed it. If you'd go to either your podcast provider or if you can't submit a review on your podcast provider, go to my website and submit a review. Please let me know what you liked, what things you think could be changed, and perhaps uh, things that you'd be interested in for the future. Many thanks for listening.
This has been Tales of a Children's Doctor. I hope you have enjoyed this episode. For more information about the podcast, please go to the website childrensdoctortales.co.uk or the Facebook page at Tales of a Children's Doctor. Please join us for the next episode where we'll hear more stories of children and their families.